And I want to remind us of our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want every man, woman, and child to hear the name of Jesus and to everybody to call on him for salvation and live their life for Jesus. We're going to continue in our series. We started this series, I think it was back in January when we started this, and we're working our ways line by line, verse by verse, working through the the New Testament book of Romans. And I've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And because really all the book of Romans, it's about the imputed righteousness of Christ, how God takes lost, wicked human beings and how he can make them fit for, for, for heaven. And that's only done through by faith, through God's grace in what his son has done for us on the cross. And so with that, if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 33 is our text this morning. I'm calling this God's plan for Israel. So as you're turning there, I want to let you know and kind of fair warn you that the text we're going to cover today, some will call controversial, okay? The scripture that we're going to cover is, is controversial and not for the same reason other scripture is called controversial, if you will. Okay, Romans chapter 1 has been absolutely called controversial because the Apostle Paul has told us very clearly that the people have rejected the truth that they know about God and they exchanged it for a false God and then they started to do all sorts of lewd act in the worship of this false God and because of that, God has given them over to a debased mind. That is very controversial text in today's age. Doesn't mean it's not true. I'm just telling you it's controversial. Or, Or... Um, Maybe a controversial text could be where Jesus said that marriage is between one man and one woman. He said that in Matthew chapter 19. In today's day and age, that is very controversial. There's lots of controversial scriptures in the Bible. It's only the the most controversial book ever written. It's controversial because it has a moral claim written by God. So therefore, that makes it controversial. But the text we will cover today is not controversial for the same reasons. Okay, the people that would say those, those examples are controversial probably would not call Romans chapter 9 controversial. One, because they don't read it. They skip over it. But the truth is, so do many Christians. Many Christians kind of skip over Romans chapter 9 because they, when they study their salvation, they say they're on this, the side of free will. So therefore, they will skip over Romans chapter 9. Well, let me tell you, I am on the side of free will. Okay, I believe that an individual either freely accepts or freely rejects the, the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. Okay, I believe that. But I also believe, believe in predestination. I believe in the election of the saints. Little story time for you. Back when I first graduated from seminary, I was uh, now a seminary graduate, and I want to find a church to pastor, so I'm trying to talk to all sorts of churches all over the western United States uh, I wanted to escape to California. That's, that's really what it was right there. So I was talking to a church, I believe it was in Idaho, and I'm speaking to the interim pastor of that church, and uh, I find out that some of their beliefs doesn't naturally um, line up with my beliefs, and he said, so tell me what you believe. And I, I told him, I said, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that if you've truly given your, your life to Jesus and you repent of your sins, you trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross by faith, that you will be saved. And there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I said, that's what I believe. To that, this man said, oh, so you're a Calvinist. 
Maybe most of you don't know what that word means. doesn't matter. But I said, no, I'm not a Calvinist. And then there was another church. I think it was North Dakota. could have been South Dakota. I don't remember. But I was talking to someone on their search committee, and I discovered that this church was exceedingly Calvinistic in their teaching. And so similar situation, and I told this individual that I believe that we have the ability to either accept or reject the free gift of Christ's perfect work on the cross. And to that, the individual said, oh, so you're an Arminianist. I said, I can't win for losing, can I? I said, no, I'm, I consider myself a biblicist, if you will. Today, we're going to study Romans chapter 9. And we're going to study this text in the context in which Paul wrote it. Okay, And Lord willing, next week, we'll also look at Romans chapter 10, where Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Love that text. I, I, I quote that text all the, all, the, all the time. You see, I believe that Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 are both correct. They're both correct. Now, if you hold to one and you don't hold to the other, I don't believe you're being fair to the text because you have to realize the same man that wrote Romans chapter 9 is also the same man that wrote Romans chapter 10. I know. Really? Yeah, no kidding, right? So why I'm saying that, because if you're going to throw one out and not throw the other out, then I believe that you're not being fair to the text. Because the same man that wrote both was inspired by the same God, the member of the Trinity, to write what he wrote. You know, sometimes what we do, we gather and we like to look at Scripture through a microscope or a magnifying glass. We like to look at text and we like to isolate it down to, to one verse or maybe one phrase and sometimes even one word. And then we base everything we believe off of that, 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 that very limited portion of, of Scripture. Okay? But did you know that there's no verses or chapters in the Bible? Oh, I know. Dramatic pause there for effect. You're like, what? What are you talking about? Of course there is. I'm reading the verse and chapters right here. I'm saying that because the men that were inspired by God to write what they wrote, they didn't put chapter breaks in. They also didn't put verse breaks in. The chapter breaks and the verse breaks in the letters of our Bibles were put there later by other men who weren't necessarily inspired by God. But let me tell you, I'm grateful that they did this. They did that so we can more systematically study Scripture and then also recall verses when we needed to. We could learn Scripture more easily. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If I say John 3.16. Now, most of you are already, you are already thinking it. Before the week's words came out of my mouth, you were thinking, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So thank you, Jesus, that somebody put those verse and chapter breaks in there. And I'm saying this because I believe we have to keep Romans chapter 9 in context, the whole book of Romans, if we're going to understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching us and not just simply boil it down to a couple verses, a couple phrases, a couple words that are found in Romans chapter 9. So we also have to consider this. At this time, there's, being, there's a shift occurring in Christianity, if you will. Okay? There's a, a shift in the demographics that's occurring in the, in the Christian church that is really worldwide at this point. Because when the church was founded, if we go back to Acts chapter 2, the church was almost nearly exclusively Jewish when it was first started. The entire church, not completely, but largely, was composed of Jewish Christians. 
Jewish Christians that trusted in a Jewish Messiah. And as time went on, that began to change. So by the time Paul, it's believed uh, he's writing this, this letter, you know, somewhere towards, we would say, in the end of the book of Acts. He's writing to the church of Rome. At that time, there are more Gentile believers than there are Jewish believers. In fact, there's very likely there's far, far more Gentile individuals that place saving faith in Jesus Christ than there was Jewish believers. For the most part... The, the, the nation of Israel has rejected Christ. And the Gentiles, not all, but largely have embraced Christ as the coming Messiah. So the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9 is, is this question. The question is, since Israel has rejected Christ as the Messiah, has God rejected them? Follow that? That's the question. Since the, since the Israel as a nation has rejected the Jewish Messiah, has God released them, forfeited them, cut them off from being his chosen people? There, there's a teaching, uh, it's, it's still very prevalent today, it's called super cessationism. And you're probably thinking, what in the world is that? Well, maybe you've heard of the, the terminology replacement theology. Maybe you've heard that, but if you haven't, let me explain to you what, what it is. Now, I'm going to keep it as simple as I possibly can because we can get deep, deep, deep in the weeds real quick. And so if I oversimplify this for some, I apologize in advance. But after the destruction of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem around 70 AD, um, there, there, there was, it seemed like the nation of Israel was lost forever. Okay? It seemed like it's gone. Really, you've got to consider in the history of time, that had never happened before. What had never happened, well, excuse me, what had never happened is that a nation once is, is conquered and, and, and is the people disperse and taken into captivity, never in the history of time has a, has a nation came back from something like that, okay? But at the same time, so now at that moment in 70 AD, it's like the nation of Israel is gone, but God had made some very specific promises to the nation of Israel that not had yet come to fruition, so there's this teaching that, that began to pop up. It was largely promoted by the Roman Catholic Church, and there's also some other sects of Protestant Christian churches. And, and, and this, is, this is me boiling it down simply, that Israel was so awful and rotten and terrible, they had cheated on God. And so what happened is God divorced Israel as his chosen nation, and he has chosen the church to replace Israel. Side note, what I find terribly ironic is whenever a church or a group teaches that, they always put them in place as God's chosen people. They, they say, yeah, God is done with Israel, and he's now chosen us. I'm like, easy, brothers. You know, I don't think that's how it's going down, okay? I think Paul knew that question was coming. Paul, this is not, you know, this is, it's not yet 70 AD when Paul writes this letter, but it's like Paul is almost knowing that's going to be the question that's coming centuries later. And so God, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring the Apostle Paul to write Romans chapter 9. So in case you weren't going where I'm, where I'm going with this, a super sensation or replacement theology, it is heresy. Okay, it is, it, is, it is wrong, it is utter heresy at its deepest level because replacement theology teaches that God's a liar and that God will remove his promise. And so that is, that is why it is utterly false. But if I'm going to be honest, I have to say, I could see how someone can get there. I get how the, his, someone's mind can go to that thinking because picture yourself, you're a believer, and let's say you're back around the year 1500 A.D., 
Okay, there are some very clear promises in the Bible to God's chosen people. But around 1500, Israel doesn't exist, right? They're gone. And so these different churches come up with replacement theology to say, well, the future promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled in us. Then fast forward to May 14th, 1948, and Israel becomes a nation in one day. That's never happened before, and now the churches that were teaching that have to say, uh-oh, right? All the churches that did that had to change their mind, because again, God had never done that before. But you know what's God, what God has never done? God's never changed his mind. God has never divorced Israel. Even though Israel is exceedingly wicked, God is going to keep his promises no matter what. And that brings us to Romans chapter 9. Now, I just recently said that God doesn't, did the, the, the Bibles, or excuse me, text and chapter breaks were not inspired by the men that wrote the, 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 the Bible. But I think we can see different sections in the book of Romans when we study it very closely. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20 is all about the wrath of God. How there's the coming wrath of God and all humanity is under the death sentence. That something has to be done, that wicked human beings are separated from God because he's a holy God from our, from our sin. That, that's the first section. And then we get to Romans 3.23, all the way to Romans 8.39. It's all about the grace of God. How the grace of God eclipses the wrath of God. So then we get to Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, and it's really talking about God's plan for the Jews. God's plans also for the, for the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is really this trilogy that we see of God's plan about Israel's past. That's what we're, we're studying right now in Romans chapter 9. We're going to, Lord willing, see uh, about the uh, Roman, excuse me, Israel's present in Romans chapter 10. And then eventually we get to Romans chapter 11, we're going to read about the future of Israel. So with that, let's pick up our Bibles and let's read verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9. The word of God says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself might be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the given in law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, their race, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall. Let me repeat that again in case you missed it. Who is the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Here's my first point for us on this Sunday morning. Point number one, God chose Israel to reveal himself to the world. Okay? Paul begins this by talking about the benefits of these, these great, um, uh, uh, what happens from being Jewish. He's saying that this is why God chose the nation of Israel. And the answer, why did God choose Israel? And the answer is to reveal himself to the world to reveal his plan of salvation, and eventually to reveal his son. Okay? This is why I'll say God chose Israel, because he's awesome. God is so awesome. God does not operate like we operate. That, that's why he, he chose Israel to be his chosen people. 
So, so if you look at what we just read, verses 1 through 5, Paul is talking about these benefits from being Jewish. And first he says the adoption. Because think about it, no other nation can lay claim to that title of God's special treasure like Israel could. In fact, God says in Exodus chapter 4, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It's like God looked at Israel as an adopted child that has been brought into his family. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord said, The the Lord your God has chosen you to be the people of his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the planet. So so Paul says there's the adoption and there's also the the, the glory is what, what he's saying. That Israel has the glory. Have you ever heard the term Shekinah glory? It's amazing. I would love to see it someday. I think I will. I know I will in the future someday. But the word, it means like the very presence of God. It was the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God that that led the people through the the desert with a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And it was the glory of God that rested over the tabernacle in 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 the wilderness and then eventually in the temple. And so Israel has the glory of God. This isn't up on your, on your screen, but I want to kind of jot this down. God's plan involves three Ps. Okay, if you can remember these Ps, you can remember a lot about God's plan. But God's plan, it, devol- it involves a place, namely Jerusalem. It, it, it involves God's people, namely the Jews, and God's person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said to them, it belongs to the covenants. And if you don't know this, a covenant is an agreement, a a pact, a a promise that can never, ever, ever be broken. Because remember those three Ps I just mentioned? God made a covenant with, with Abraham for the land, and God made a covenant with Moses for the people of that land, and God made a, a covenant with David for the Messiah who would come from the people of that land who was a Jewish Messiah. And Paul said, said Israel was given the law. That's the books of the Bible. Little fun fact for you. Did you know that every book in our Bible, except two, had Jewish authors? Little fun fact for you. All the Old Testament Jewish authors and all the New Testament minus two books had had Jewish authors. Only, Only two that were written by a Gentile, and that is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, a Gentile. So all the rest of them were Jewish. And Paul's saying to them was given the law, the scriptures. That's what Paul is referring to. And Paul says, says in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. You're thinking, well, who are the patriarchs? Paul's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. They're all Jewish. God chose one man. His name was Abraham. And he wasn't initially a Jew. He was a Gentile. He later becomes a Jew. He was the first Jew. He is a man that's called out the Earl of Chaldees. And God said, hey, through you, this old man, I'm going I'm to build a great nation. And you think about it, that proves that God has an amazing sense of humor. Because here he says to one old man and his infertile old wife, hey, I'm going to build out of you a nation. That's wild. And then God does it and makes it even more wild, Right? And so if you know this, Sarah, she has a baby, and then the, the family grew from there. And then generations later, there's lots and lots of children. They, they were in the promised land, and there was a famine. They had to go down to Egypt. I'm giving the cliff note version, and they stayed there for centuries. They became slaves, eventually delivered from slavery. But by the time that happens, they're in the numbers of millions. 
They eventually get to the land, the promised land that God gave to them. And if you don't know the story, they were, they were ruled by judges. And they didn't like the judges. They say, we want kings. And so they got kings. And each king was more wicked than the king before it. And then pretty soon, Israel's really just eyeball deep in idolatry. And I want to say, it is a full-blown miracle of God that, that Israel exists today. One of my very good friends, I was, I was having a conversation with him. He's not a believer. And we're having, having lunch one day. And he said, hey, prove to me God exists. I said, okay, look to Israel. Israel is proof that there is a God. Because if there, is, if there was no God, Israel would have been wiped off the face of the earth centuries ago. But because God exists, Israel exists. Now, this, my, my buddy, he's still not a believer. If you knew him, you'd love him. Great guy. But you can't argue with that. The chances of Israel existing today are like less than zero, let alone them being a superpower. It's only because they are God's chosen people that they still exist. But then here's the greatest blessing that comes from being Jewish, and Paul mentions it in verse 5 of Romans chapter 9. He says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So we have to recognize that, that Jesus, he comes from a Jewish background, and he is God come in the flesh. He is the eternal, blessed God. So Jesus, he was a Jewish man. He grew up in a Jewish family. He was, he was dedicated in the Jewish temple. He went through all the, the Jewish rituals. He went to the Jewish Passover. He celebrated all the Jewish festivals. And so salvation has come through the Jews, right? If you were to go to John chapter 4, if you know the, the conversation Jesus was having with the Samaritan woman there, he kind of convicts her of her sin. She doesn't like that. She wants to change the subject. She says, hey, you Jews do your thing over there, and us Samaritans, we do our thing up on the mountains, right? And then Jesus said to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus did not say that being Jewish saves you. That's not what he said. But salvation has come through the Jews. Jesus is speaking of himself. The worship of the one true God first came to the Jews, and there's huge benefits from that. That's what Paul has just laid out. Look at what Paul says next. Go to verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. The word of God says, but it is not, it, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that, there, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says. About the next year I will return, and Sarah will, will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, God chose Israel because God is sovereign. If you don't know what that word means, it means he's in control. He is the CEO of the universe. God calls the shots, all the shots. The question that Paul is answering in verse 9, remember, since Israel has rejected Jesus, has God rejected Israel in return? 
But please note, and we have to recognize that not all of Israel has rejected Jesus. Not every single Jew has rejected Jesus as the coming Messiah. Because remember, all largely the first Christians were, were made up of Jewish men and women. So not all of Israel has rejected Jesus. Did the majority reject Jesus? Yes, but not all of them. So that does not negate God's promise to the minority, right? God still has a covenant. In fact, God's choice to save is not based off their physical descendants. It is also not based off their their performance. God doesn't operate like human beings operate. If God doesn't operate based off of who you're connected to, God does not operate off who you're related to. God's choice isn't based off your family lineage. So this is what I'm saying. You're not saved because of who your grandparents are. God does not operate his divine election based off of that. Because of that, God can say before anyone was born, the older will serve the younger. That's what he said in the text that we just read. And then the two examples are Abraham and Isaac. These men, they both had sons. Both of them had two sons. If we think of Abraham, he had two sons. The first, first child was Ishmael and the second was Isaac. But then the promise didn't come through Ishmael. The promise came through Isaac. In the culture of that time, that's unheard of. Because in the culture of that time, it was the eldest son that got the lion's share of the inheritance. But what God did is he skipped the firstborn and he went to the secondborn, who was Isaac. And then it continued. Isaac had, had a wife. Her name was Rebecca. And they had two sons. It was Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the firstborn. He was tall, red, and hairy. He was the man's man. And so if you're thinking that the, the, the promise is going to come through, a, through, a, through somebody who is a, a manly man, it's going to be Esau. But that's not what happened. Okay, the inheritance went to the second son, who was Jacob. Because verse 13 says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And maybe you're thinking, well, what's up with that? That verse doesn't really sit well with me. Well, verse 13 is a quote out of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi, the, the book that closes our Old Testament. we got to consider, in, when Malachi chapter 1 was written, it was a thousand years after Jacob and Esau were born. So a thousand years after these men were born, they had kids, their kids had kids, and now they are, are both a giant nation, if you will. Because out of Esau came the nation of, of Edom, and out of Jacob came Israel. Well, the Edomites, you know, Esau's kids, they don't love God. They don't worship God. In fact, they, they hated God. They hated the Jewish people. They're enemies with each other. There's a real sibling rivalry going on here. And so what, so what Malachi is speaking of when he wrote, what he wrote is not the men of Jacob and Esau, but the nations that came out of them. That what the prophet Malachi said have everything to do with the nation that God has elected as his chosen nation, not the individual's. And because these two boys, again, remember, they produce two nations. That's what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 9. Because remember the question that Paul is answering, did God reject the Jews? And maybe you read chapter 9, verse 13, and you're like, that's a harsh verse. I don't like that verse. Maybe you think it's a harsh verse because in your mind, God is loving and and kind and, and always forgiving, and he is. But in our mind, we usually think, well, God doesn't hate anyone. But let me tell you, you know what makes this verse even more problematic? Do a study on Jacob. Do a study on Jacob. In verse 19, it becomes more problematic because Jacob's a dog. 
I don't know how to say it. He is a low, down, lying, dirty dog. His, the name Jacob, it means trickster. You named your kid Jacob, you named him trickster, okay? But, but God was merciful and God was compassionate. Even though, you know, he didn't, he shouldn't have, right? That shouldn't have happened. So, so, so the real problem isn't how in the world can God be, be loving to, or how, how, that God hates Edom. The bigger problem is how can God love a low, down, lying, dirty dog like Jacob? Because here's the truth. If God was like us, he wouldn't love us, let alone like us. And he wouldn't do love or like either one of those two boys. So we better be grateful that God's not like us. No matter how we look at the doctrine of election, it's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to figure out. I might say even like next to impossible to figure out how God can predetermine, how God can elect you before you're born, and then God can demand that you make a choice to choose him after you're born. So God chooses us, but then he says, hey, you must choose him. The Bible says both are correct. God elects, but then God tells us to select him. So God predestines, God calls, but then he, he tells us we have to decide if we're going to believe. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world does that work? Well, let me give you an illustration. Maybe this will help. Let's say you want to take a flight from Denver to New York City. Now you choose, you drive to, to Denver and you, you, you purchase a ticket and, and you're, now you're going to ride this plane. Well, the plane has been predetermined for you. It's a Boeing 777, and its departure time, its, its, its course, and also its, its cruising flight speed has all been predetermined by somebody other than you. But you still have to determine if you're going to buy a ticket or not. And then when you buy a ticket, you still have some freedom of where you're going to sit on that aircraft with some limitations. You determine on your own what you're going to watch on that little head screen, the, the screen in front of you, which movie, or if you're not going to at all, right? You have the freedom to choose. But ultimately, you have to choose if you're going to take that flight or not. Now, I recognize that illustration breaks down because there can be multiple flights from Denver to New York. There's also different avenues of trains, planes, and automobiles. But you get the gist of what I'm saying, right? There's only one way to heaven, and that's through the man, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. And you must choose. But God makes a choice based off his sovereign will. It's God elects and God predestines. So you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And at the same time, you must choose God. Now, somebody's going to look at that and they're going to say, that's not fair. I don't like that. It's not fair that that's how God operates. And you know what? I'm glad that's what you're thinking. And I think the apostle Paul knew that's exactly what you were going to say. Look in verse number 14 of Romans chapter 9. The word of God says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Point number three for us this morning. Here's my third point. God's plan is perfect. You're thinking, no kidding, Pastor John. I know, I like to state the obvious. But Paul said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Or no way. The Apostle Paul has been answering some ground-shattering questions throughout this book. And here's another one. Is there injustice on God's part? No way, Jose. That's what Paul has said. Now, let me explain what we're about to read in the coming verses, okay? Because God's election has always been a matter of grace. God does not act based on what we deserve. If God acted only on a, on a basis of our righteousness or the fact of what we deserve, do you know how many people would be saved? 
Zero. Someone said it. You're exactly right. If God acted like us and only acted on based off what we deserved or our righteousness, there would be a grand total of zero people in heaven. In heaven, there would be the Trinity and two-thirds of the angels, and that's it, right? But God has always acted on a basis of grace. Pick up your Bibles. Begin reading in verse 15. It says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's keep what we just read in context. In Romans chapter 9 verse 15, Paul is quoting Exodus chapter 3. Excuse me, not 3, but 33. If we were to back up and, and think about Romans, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 32, that's where Moses goes up on the mountains. He's, he's on Mount Sinai. He comes down. He's got the Ten Commandments in his hand, and man, it's going to be awesome. And what are the people doing? Yeah, they're having a full-blown orgy down at, at the base of the mountain. Okay? They're having a party that would make most of, most of the Hollywood elites today blush. And it's all going down around a golden calf. It's all idolatry. And the entire nation of Israel, they're all involved. The whole, and this is what Paul is saying, that the whole nation of Israel, they all deserve to die. Right then, right there, if God was being fair, he would have smoked every last one of them. But God didn't smoke the whole nation, did he? No, God did kill 3,000 of them, but the majority of them were allowed to live. You see, if God was being fair, like we say, God should have smoked every last one of them right then and right there. But God was merciful. God was compassionate on many of them, even though they all deserve to die. This is Paul's argument. Follow me on Paul's logic. He's saying, if you're going to say that God's being unfair because he chooses one over another, then you have to say that God was unfair at Mount Sinai when he let most of the people live, even though he should have smoked every last one of them. The fact that God does not kill the entire nation of Israel shows God's merciful. That's why in that text, God can say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And somebody's still sitting there thinking, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. That, that, that's not right. And you know what I'll say? You're right. You're right. God's not fair. It wasn't fair that Jesus Christ went to the cross. It wasn't fair that Jesus took a scourging with the cat of nine tails, not once, but, not, but twice. That's not fair. Jesus didn't deserve to die. Jesus is the sinless son of God. And yet he did it. Why? Because God was showing his mercy. God was showing his compassion. He was showing compassion on me. He was showing compassion on you. And you and the entire world, we sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. Here's what I'll say to that. Thank you, God, that you're not fair. Thank you, you don't give me what I deserve. And Paul continues, he's comparing Pharaoh and Moses. If you remember, that came earlier in Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 9. If you don't remember the story, let me remind you of the story. But Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Think about it. Both these men, they grew up as boys. They grew up in Egypt. 
Now, Moses was a Jew and Pharaoh was a Gentile, but they're both leaders. They're both sinners. They're both murderers. We forget that about Moses, right? We forget that he murdered a man. Both of these men saw the power of God, but then Pharaoh is lost. Moses is saved. Why was Moses lost? Here's the answer. Because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Maybe you're thinking, hold on, Pastor John. In Romans chapter 9, verse 18, it says, so then he'll have mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's what it says. In my study of this, I've read of an Old Testament scholar, went through and and looked at every single time it refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in in the Old Testament, and there's 20 times. 20 times in the Old Testament refers to the hardening of of Pharaoh's hearts. And 10 times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And 10 times it says that God hardens his heart. And you're thinking, well, what's up with that? Well, if we were to pull out a Hebrew Bible and we were to read those accounts in Hebrew, you would see there's two different words. Two different words for hardening used in those texts. When the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the word for harden is the word kavad. It means to make heavy. And when the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's hearts, the word for harden is the word hazach. It means to to make firm or to confirm. So this is what's happening. Pharaoh sees the the power of God and he says, he says, I'm the big dog in charge. I call the shots. I am God. I'm going to decide what goes on here. And so it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then God sees what, what Pharaoh did. Says, oh, you want to play this game? Okay, you harden your heart. I see your, your bid, and I, up the, I, up your, I, I increase the, the game you're playing here. That's what God does. So Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God says, okay, I'm going to harden some more. Here's the point. If you choose to harden your heart, God will not only allow it, but he'll go with it. If you decide that you're going to harden your heart against God, if you're, going to, if you're determined uh, that you're going to go to hell, God's going to honor your choice. God will confirm the choice that you make. You're like, that's a little harsh. God would send somebody to hell. Listen, God did not create hell for any human being. Jesus said that, that hell is a place of everlasting fire that was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. It was not God's plan that human beings would ever go there, but yet he lets people go there if they choose to go there. Hell is an act of judgment on mankind, but it's actually, it gives human beings what they want in the end. Because God pursues everybody. God has made a way for everybody. God has revealed himself to everybody. Yet if someone continues to reject the grace of God that's given to them and continues to reject the perfect work of Christ on the cross, ultimately, if they don't want God, then they get what they want, which is separation from God for all eternity in hell. You see, hell is a place of a total absence of God. Absence of his grace, absence of his presence, absence of any hope for all eternity. And still there's someone who will say, well, that's not fair. Well, let me use this illustration. Let's say there's a man, and he's a good man. He's a loving man. He's a kind man. He's a single man, and he's interested in this single gal. And so he's pursuing her, and he's pursuing her, and he buys her flowers and buys her chocolates, and he's asking her out for dinners. And again, he's a great guy. 
But for a reason, she says, nah, I'm not interested. And he pursues and he pursues and he pursues, but she rejects all of his advances. What if he said, I demand that you accept my affection? What would happen? The cops would get involved, right? That's what would happen. So if he loves her, he'll pursue, but in his love, eventually he will stop. Because that's not what she wants, right? God pursues and pursues and pursues, but he does not force his love on anyone. We must willingly accept God's love. God makes a sovereign, independent choice to show mercy, to be compassionate on whom he wills. Then human beings must freely accept God's mercy and compassion. Drop down to verse 23 of Romans chapter 9. The word of God says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of, vessels of mercy, on he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And all the Gentiles say amen. Yeah, that's me. Amen. As indeed it, 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 he says in Hosea, those who were not so those who were not my people, I will call my people. On her, on her who ha, was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it is said to them, you were not my people, they, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Here's my fourth and final point for us this morning. Point number four, God's plan includes everyone. God's plan includes everyone. I hope you understand. God's plan includes everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. God's plan is inclusive. The apostle Peter says in his second letter, he says about God, he said, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Think about this for a minute. The sovereign God of the universe, the God that hung the stars in the sky, that, that set the earth in motion, that, that blew life into your nostrils. That God doesn't get everything he wants. Because he wants everybody to come to him, but there's some that just flat out refuse. Now there's some that will say, well, I'll come, I'll come to God, but I'm just not of the elect. Here's what I'd say to that. Come to God and you'll find out that you are. You'll find out that the God of the universe has been pursuing you with an everlasting love your entire life, and he wants you to come to him. Come to Jesus by faith and you'll find out that God has been pursuing you your whole life. Romans chapter 9, it's a difficult passage to really wrap your brain around, but here's a couple takeaways from it. One, God loves you. God loves you and he, he loves you and he chooses you in spite of the things you've done and in spite of who you are. And the second thing we need to recognize is that God is sovereign that he can choose whomever he wishes. And I say that, but that should bring us comfort. That should bring us comfort because the real God of the universe, he's always in control. He's always loving. He's always been holy. He'll always be holy. And yet he still wants you, despite of how wicked you and I both are. And some, of them, some people would still reject that and say, well, that doesn't include me. And then the next person would say the opposite and would say, well, of course God loves me. Look how great I am. And then somebody else would say something crazy like, well, of course God loves me. I go to church, don't I? As if God checks the church attendance before he elects somebody. That's crazy. Someone could go to church their entire life every single Sunday and then at the end of life find out they're not one of God's children. Because they haven't bent a knee to King Jesus. 
And then again, on the other side of the coin, someone who has never stepped foot into a church building can be brought to the family of God by grace and through by what Christ, Christ has done for them on the cross. Jesus came and he died for sinners so that we don't have to die. I want you to know the spiritual life does not come from physical birth. It comes from spiritual birth. In this chapter, Paul mentioned a, a couple sets of brothers. One belonged to God, the other one didn't. In the same way, we can't say, well, of course I'm a Christian. My parents were, were Christian. My grandparents were Christian. My dad's uncle's brother's barber was a Baptist preacher. To that, I'd say, God says, who cares? That's great for you. But, well, that's great for them, but what about you? My first point is still up on the board right there. Can you read it? It says, God's plan includes everyone. Everyone. I mean, Jew. I mean, Jew. I mean, Jew. That means everybody in this town, in this nation, across the entire globe for all eternity. That includes everybody. Because it doesn't matter how good you failed to be, and it doesn't matter exactly how bad you currently are. Jesus came and he died for sinners. He came and he wants you to place saving faith in him and what he's done, and then he'll change you. Does God love everybody? The answer is yes. But come to him and he doesn't, he loves you enough to not to leave you where you are. God wants everyone to be saved. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the text, my, my favorite text in the entire Bible in Romans 10, 13, where it says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. I quote that verse more than any other verse in the Bible. There was a theologian by the name of John Bunyan, and he said, when we get to heaven, as we, as we start to enter the gates of heaven, over the gates of heaven, there's a sign, and, it, and on that sign it says, whoever will may come. He said, then you walk through the gates of heaven, you look back, and over that same gate, there's a sign that says, chosen in him before the foundations of the world. It's the same gate, just a matter of different perspectives. I don't know if that's written over the gates of heaven, probably not, but it's fun to think about, right? But look at how Paul ends this chapter, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, the righteousness that comes by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it was based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying on Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul just said, the salvation's by faith. It's not by works. It's not by being a good person. It's not by church attendance. It's not by anything. It's solely on faith in Jesus. Why? Why is it so easy? Two answers. Number one, so that everybody can come. It's not by works. It's not by being a good person. It's not by your parents, or it's not by where you were born. It's by faith in Jesus. Why? So everyone can come. And it's also, is Jesus a stumbling stone? Did you know that? We read that text. He says, Jesus is the stumbling stone. Why? Because everybody wants to think, well, if I'm going to get to heaven, it's because I've I'm, I'm done something so good. 
It's because I'm a good person. Look what I've done. I'm good, so God must let me in heaven. No, that's not it. It's only in, by faith in the God-man Jesus, what he did for us on that cross, and by his resurrection from the grave. Here's what I want you to know. If you make a choice to follow Jesus today, he will not say, no, you cannot come in. I didn't elect you. That's not what he's going to say. You'll find out he's been calling you your whole life. He's been pursuing you your entire life, that you'll look back in your life and you'll say, that's God that was pursuing me. I'm so glad that God doesn't operate like me. See, what must happen, it must come this, this, this moment where you recognize your sinfulness and the perfection of Christ. And you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ in faith. And he'll save you. And again, the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I tell you to do it now. Just say, dear God, I'm a sinner. And I come to you by faith. Because what Jesus did on that cross, it was for me. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen.